Trump says it's time to keep quiet about foreign policy. We are totally predictable. We tell everything. The U.S. ambassador tells us the special relationship is alive and well. Ten years of one regiment, the state of the army in Scotland. And could this be Putin's latest weapon? <laughs> So, do politicians give away too much when they talk about foreign policy? There's ISIS. I have a simple message for them. Their days are numbered. I won't tell them where and I won't tell them how. We must... We must, as a nation, be more unpredictable. We are totally predictable. We tell everything. We're sending troops, we tell them. We're sending something else, we have a news conference. We have to be unpredictable. And we have to be unpredictable starting now. Well, if you hadn't already guessed, that was Republican frontrunner Donald Trump saying we need to keep stum when it comes to military plans. Well, let's talk to former British ambassador to Libya and now editor of Arab Digest, Oliver Miles. And with me, as usual, is BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Hello. Oliver Miles, um, is Donald Trump right? I couldn't bring myself to agree with Donald Trump. <laughs> on anything, I, I guess. Um, I mean, on the idea of keeping your plans more, well, your cards close to your chest. Well, I think he's confusing two things, isn't he? He's talking, he, he started by saying he was talking about foreign policy, but in fact he was talking about military action. And there's a very clear distinction between the two. Obviously, if you're going to take military action, um, you don't usually tell the enemy what you're going to do before it happens. Uh, but that doesn't apply in foreign policy. Mm. The Foreign Secretary has been talking a lot about Libya recently. Do you think he said too much? Well, maybe, yes. Uh, not, only the, not only the Foreign Secretary, but uh, the, we've heard this from the other European ministers as well, particularly from the Italians, the Germans, the French. They're talking about the possibility, possibility of uh, military operations in Libya. Uh, you can see why, because people are worried about uh, the Daesh, um, ISIS presence in, in Libya, and also there's the problem of migration. But the, the, the difficulty is that they may be making it less likely that the Libyans will actually cooperate with us because the Libyans are sensitive on the question of foreign intervention in their country. So I think, uh, yes, I think he, he said a little bit too much. Chris Vili, where do you stand on all of this? I think the, 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 we go back to the, the, the Trump thing. That's right. I mean, foreign policy, no, you, you lay out your foreign policy. You have to lay out your foreign policy, not only to your own people, but to the Congress, if you're an American president, but also to your allies. And you can't say, well, you know, I whisper this, you know, you mustn't tell anybody Chatham House rules. So that's, that's, that, that's that part. If you go back, for example, Iraq war... Uh, and then, if you go 1991, the first one, you had this big, big explanation: we're going to come in, we're going to have, you know, a terrible bombing to start with, etc., etc. It's a totally different idea. That is a tactic. That's what you've assumed that will work. But here in Libya, I think it's a special, uh, a special case. One, uh, we have a very tenuous form of government at the moment. We have a prime minister who appears to be saying, "Please do not." 
start coming up with all these things because I will have great difficulty within my own country of containing all those people who are so far going along with the idea of a unified form of government. And I think that is the difficult. There is another side of it, though, and that is when you get to the position of uh, saying, right, we are putting a load of gear into a load of assets into the Mediterranean. You can't hide this sort of thing. Then you have to explain perhaps not so much what you're doing is what you're capable of doing, and, mm. that, and that's the thing. But you have to make sure that, you know, back to the basics, back to the basics. If you, if you want to go into a country, you've got to hope that you're being invited into the country, or otherwise you've got to have the United Nations supporting you and saying that's what you want to do. You've got to have your own attorney general saying legally we're okay to be doing this. And I think that is this, not megaphone diplomacy, but that is the sort of, uh, the difficulty. I think that the British, the French, and especially, as uh, as uh, Oliver Miles says, the Italians have got at the moment. Oliver Miles, uh, assuming that were there to be any kind of intervention on the ground in Libya in terms of combat, that it would be subject to debate in Parliament and, and perhaps a vote as well, is that necessary in today's day and age anyway because of accountability, because of Chilcot? Yes, I think it probably is. I, I, I think the, the government of still, um, successive governments have still hung on to the, the, the fact that, that it might, nece- might be necessary to take some kind of military action uh, without consulting Parliament. Let me give you an example. Uh, a couple of days ago, a tanker was loaded in, in uh, the, one of the eastern oil terminals in Tripoli with oil, which is going to be sold on behalf of the government that we don't recognise. Now, uh, it was, it, there was an attempt to stop it being loaded, but it was unsuccessful. It was loaded. It moved to as far as Malta, and as far as I know, it's still stuck outside Maltese territorial waters because the Maltese won't let it in. Well, if you have to intervene in a, in a matter like that, you can't consult Parliament about it because there isn't time. Mm. Christopher Lee, um, the Shadow Defence Secretary, Emily Thornbury, has been putting about a view uh, of more control and more openness about decisions in this way. Yeah, but she's basically saying, listen, if there's going to be a big deployment, if we're going to go effectively what could be a, a, a deployment and enter another country, then Parliament has to be told there should be, for example, maybe a Privy Council uh, committee that would look about uh, look at this, that would bring in, as I said earlier, the Attorney General. There is a distinction here we should, we should understand, and, and I'm sure she will understand, and that is deployment, which all it means with uh, large formations, with the logistics, with the backup, with the toing and froing that gives you, you get when you, you enter another country. Deployment and insertion. And insertion is when you get specialist forces. And those specialist forces that are working in there now, in, in fringe areas, what they're doing, they're sending back to both military and political uh, sides and, and, and intelligence, uh, who is what, who's doing what, who's in charge, uh, if we if we if we were going to go into an area, what would we face? What are the logistics there? What support would we have? In, in other words, the whole intelligence picture uh, that you need everything from the, the a beach survey to know what the gradient is of the sand as you're coming up the beach if necessary. What about the diplomacy, Oliver Miles? What kind of silent diplomacy would someone like you be going about at the moment? Well, I don't think there's a there's an, uh, a hard and fast rule as to how you do it, um, but I would I would like to suggest that the there's a simple uh, rule which you can start off with, which is you should think not only about how is this going to go down in the British Parliament and in, with British public opinion, which of course ministers have to do all the time, but they should also be thinking how is this going to go down in Libya 
or, or the other country concerned. And uh, if, they, if they don't know enough about Libya to, uh, to make that judgment, then they've got people in the Foreign Office to advise them. Um, you, quite a lot of people in Britain objected to the idea that President Obama should tell us what he thinks about Brexit. Other people thought it was legitimate. Uh, there was a, a division of opinion within this country. But if, if President Obama had said, by the way, I'm sending the U.S. Navy into your territorial waters, whether you like it or not, I don't think there would have been a division of opinion in this country very much. I think most people would have said this is a terrible idea. And uh, we are a country that hasn't been invaded for nearly a thousand years. Libya's been invaded by Italy, uh, almost within living memory. Uh, it, it's not been invaded by Britain, but parts of it have been, in effect, occupied by Britain. So it's not surprising they're extremely sensitive on this subject. And you, before you say anything at all about this, you should think and take advice. How is this going to go down in Libya? Oliver Miles, good to talk to you today. Thank you for your time. Uh, Christopher, let's talk briefly about Islamic State because you've been uh, reading that there aren't so many recruits. What's happened is that over the past 12 months, uh, the Americans have been successfully bombing in the cash bot, uh, banks. They're big metal stores where literally dollar bills are kept. And the, this time last year, we'd have said the, the, the diocese probably had a budget of about $2 billion. US dollars. The Americans reckon they have destroyed by bombing probably 18 raids, something like 800 million US dollars. So not so much money, so not so many recruits. Now, you see, recruits, by and large, they join for the the money. The the pay is extremely good. Mm. Um, And so recruits have been falling off. I mean, they reckon probably they've lost about 15% of their recruits. Uh, And there's also about a 90% which is huge, 90% jump in defections. Uh, last year, they were getting recruits coming in at around about 2,000 a month to get paid. And is that, are those, fi- I mean, are these the figures, figures cred- is it credible, oh, these yeah, numbers? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's only about 200, uh, 200 a, a month. Now, there's a, 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 an extra bit of this, and that is if it gets to a big state of not getting paid and money falling off, etc., then the guys will get fed up about it. That is the point when the so far hidden uh, leader of ISIS will have to make a big statement, will have to appear. Nobody's seen him for two years. He will have to appear. That's the time he gets vulnerable to an American bombing. Still to come, 14 to 1, the merger of the Scottish regiments 10 years on. And Flipper joins the Russian Navy. Is Putin training dolphins for military action? Private transatlantic talks are going on about what to do about Libya. The UK wants to take the lead but cannot do so without America's say-so. So what does President Obama want to do about Libya and what of that recurring theme, the so-called special relationship? Early this week I put those questions to the US Ambassador Matthew Barzen. President Obama's visit, as we know, was part of his his farewell tour and he's talked about one of his, his big regrets being the lack of forethought in what to do post Libya. Mm. How do you think, and he was critical of David Cameron as well, as we all know, uh, how do you think he might put things right or set it in the right direction before he ends his presidency? Well, well, two thoughts. First, on the the Libya issue, uh, and it wasn't picked up in that one article in the Atlantic so much. I mean, he's in front of the United Nations General Assembly and in many broadcasts been very critical of himself and of his administration and the responsibility he feels. He so, listed a, one of his major regrets. What that, does he try and achieve? Well, and, and by the way, no regret in terms of 
remember back what, what we were all facing with Gaddafi saying what he was going to do to murder potentially tens of thousands of his own people. So President Obama said, I'm glad we did what we did then. He wishes that the United States and others who were engaged there had done more, quote, the day after to make sure that there was more peace and stability. And that's why both countries, the U.S. and the U.K., are engaged there now to try to get this fledgling government of national accord stood up and, and starting to, to govern and will stay engaged there. So th that's how I think about it. In the two and a half years that you spent here, what do you think that you have been able to achieve? I mean, the world, the security threats have either changed or they consolidated. What do you think you've been able to do with diplomacy to make the UK and the world a safer place since when you started here? Well, most of the incredible work happens, and I think anyone coming into a job like mine needs to recognize the breadth and depth of this relationship. You talked about the military connections, the intelligence-sharing um, relationships, and, I, and that word relationship gets used a lot. I mean, these are actual brave men and women who train together, work together, fight together, take huge risks together. Um, that is amazing. That will survive, and that gives this special relationship strength regardless of who comes into this job. So I think the role of someone like me to come to is to try to celebrate it, try to convene, try to make sure we are honoring that, and not be complacent. And so one of the things I am most proud that we've done here during my time is formed this Young Leaders UK program, because we have to make sure that we don't fall into the trap of getting nostalgic about our amazing past, mm -hmm. our amazing shared history, we got to renew it and refresh it for the next 70 years, and that's why President Obama took time out to have that town hall with Next Generation. I, I remember you hadn't really heard of the phrase special relationship when you first started here. Um, do you think maybe sometimes it's just time to move on from that expression? Because sometimes it can be used, it's so emotive, isn't it, when you come to negotiating, it's always trotted out by the media. Perhaps it's time just to ditch it. Well, I had certainly heard about it. I was actually given advice from a British friend in America uh, and he said, please don't fall into that trap of banging on. This is how he put it. I think banging on exactly. about this special Should relationship. Just... just quit it. And so I, he's a smart guy. So I thought about it. Um, and with respect, I hope, I think he's totally wrong. It is okay. special. And it is special in the reasons we were talking about earlier um, with our amazing history and the amazing current bravery shown by men and women in the armed forces, in our intelligence community, in our commercial relationships, in our cultural relationships. I mean, this is a special thing, and I summarize it as follows. There are countries and there are people that you need to work with, okay? And there are people and countries you want to work with. And then there is the magic of those that are both. You need to work with them, you want to work with them, you enjoy working together. That's what makes it so special. Matthew Barzen, good to meet you. Thank, Thank you. For your time. So, Christopher, just tell us a bit more about where this word special relationship came from. It started in uh, 1946 with uh, Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill had lost the election. He was no longer prime minister. After the war, he realised that Britain could just be... The, the line between Britain and uh, America could be cut. And the Americans were could say, well, that's it. It doesn't matter what's happening with the, with the Brits. Um, we rushed forward to, uh, um, say, the end of uh, 1946, and when Churchill gave his famous speech about the Iron Curtain coming down, in other words, Europe had being uh, was being split between the Soviet Union and the West, and he said, we have to work with a special relationship with America to contain this. We then jumped to 1962, and there was a guy called Dean Acheson, 
And he was the, had been uh, American Secretary of State, John Kerry of his day. And he made a speech to, to the American army, and he said this, uh, the Brits have lost an empire, i.e. India, 1947. The Brits have lost an empire. They've not yet gained a role. And Churchill and his like are trying to cling on to us in some form of special relationship. In other words, the special relationship does not exist from the Americans' point of view. When it comes together into some good deal, then it's rather special. But forget the special relationship, because if you need a label like special relationship, hmm. the whole idea is going to get discredited. Uh, let's look at some of the other things around this week. Um, the Australians are buying French submarines, not Japanese one, what, ones. What's going on exactly? Aha, well, you see, the, the, the Australians need to replace all their submarines. I mean, the, they're the Collins-class submarines. They're absolutely sort of... It's a $50 billion deal, is it? Uh, it's fifth, it's, no, it's 50... It comes out about 27 uh, sterling. There's dollars or Australian dollars. What happened is uh, Tony Abbott, who's the uh, Prime Minister that, that, that left quite recently... He was a great mate of the Japanese Prime Minister, um, uh, Prime Minister Abe. He said, listen, we want these submarines, and I reckon Mitsubishi, your organization, can actually build us 12 submarines for this sort of money. Abe said yes, because they'd never done this sort of thing before. And then you got a new Prime Minister, as we have now, Malcolm Turnbull. And he said, well, A, I'm not going to do just things that Tony Abbott, that's why I got rid of him. <laughs> like see. the accent. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> you know. uh, uh, and uh, I mean, it was him who, who actually said when he was asked, what do you think about this, uh, this deal? He said, well, it's a great deal, but it won't last all morning, I tell you that. <laughs> anyway, so what has happened there, more importantly, is that the Japanese have lost this deal because there are people in the Australian Parliament who say to themselves, the Japanese have problems with letting technology go mm. to other countries. And that's it. But what it does also tell us is the emphasis which the Australians are now putting on the Pacific as a, as a, as a future possible, mm. a future battleground that they will have to take part in. We don't often talk about, well, we do talk about North Korea quite a bit on this programme, but uh, what is Kim Jong-un up to at the moment? Uh, Kim Jong has been on the blower. To all his on friends. the blower. On the blower. <laughs> I think he calls it that himself. Yes, as uh, we North Koreans especially say. <laughs> yes, exactly. What's <laughs> he's he, been, who's he been on the blower to? Well, What's been, he been saying? Well, it's on the blower, actually, <laughs> that he's been on. Uh, anyway, he, what he's doing, he's calling next week, uh, next, uh, next Friday the 6th. Secure line, I'm sure, no? As, uh, insecure, no, I heard it. On, 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 <laughs> listen, listen, listen to this. Yes, OK. Um, on, next Friday, the 6th of May, there's going to be something rather unusual in North Korea, and that is a party congress. And it's the first one in 36. Six years. The last one brought to, brought to prominence uh, Kim Jong Un's uh, father. So that's how how strange it is. The jest is at the moment that he's looking for somebody who can make a bomb work, uh, because they've had quite a few uh, uh, failures, and that there will probably be another nuclear explosion. What he wants to do at that Congress next uh, uh, next Friday or Friday week tomorrow week is to declare we are a fully nuclear state. And the Americans better realise this. And it is, a, it is a, a consolidation. And there will also be some exposés, as far as he sees it, of people who have been uh, disloyal. And mm. maybe even a couple of executions just to... Uh, just to emphasise his authority. Now, the Royal Regiment of Scotland recently celebrated its 10th birthday with a parade through Edinburgh. It was formed in 2006 as a so-called super regiment from the somewhat controversial squeezing of 14 historic regiments into just six battalions and one independent company. Well, BFBS reporter Ali Gibson has been looking at what Scottish soldiers stand for in the British Army today. 
From historic Edinburgh Castle, the Royal Regiment of Scotland began their Freedom Parade to mark their 10th year. W01 Jason Dixon is the regiment's command sergeant major. Scottish soldiers have always served in the British Army. I think proportionally, you know, we make up a bigger representation for the size of our country than perhaps other nations do. And that's because we're a warrior nation. And our history is steeped in the proud, fearless professionalism that we all have and is evident in each of the battalions. The Royal Scots, raised in 1633, was the oldest unit in the British Army before it was amalgamated into the Royal Regiment of Scotland. In 2006, 14 units were cut down to six battalions and one independent company. But the need to retain their history and tradition was strong. It's still seen today, from the coloured hackles the soldiers wear in their headdress to the fact that huge numbers of young men still sign up from the traditional recruiting grounds. When Colour Sergeant Billy Carnegie was fighting the Taliban in 2008, support from his local community was key. Your pals next door, on your street, on the estate, uh, we all looked after each other. We are all from the same area at the time uh, and we are all living around each other. So not only official uh, levels of support, but my friends as well. More than 100 soldiers took part in Edinburgh's Freedom of the City parade, including several from across the Commonwealth. For retired Major General James Cowan, himself a former commander of the Black Watch, it's an older development than most people realise. Regiments from Scotland have always been able to welcome people from elsewhere. During the Second World War, many of our soldiers came from England or even from London and they became very, very firm, fervent jocks and we've always welcomed them. So now we've got soldiers from Fiji, from the West Indies, from Africa, and they're just the same. They're very much welcome in our regiment. This is a country fiercely proud of its armed forces, and the Royal Regiment of Scotland is dependent on that support. Lieutenant Colonel Tom Perkins is the regimental colonel. They have provided immense support, both in our time in Iraq and Afghanistan, where... Things got very difficult, as you will recall. But also we need to mark the fact that we rely on good men and women uh, to come into the regiment from various communities around Scotland. That operation continues all the time, so we rely on the community a lot. In 2006, many worried the traditions of the antecedent units would be lost forever. But today, these soldiers still stand proud to represent the Royal Regiment of Scotland and their country. Ali Gibson for BFBS in Edinburgh. So, Christopher, your family's heritage goes back to, to Scotland, doesn't it? Involvement in the military as well. Was that the t- 10-year anniversary? I mean, do you remember where you were when that was announced? Well, I'm not merger? sure. I'm where, actually, I think I probably... I do remember. Uh, I was at Westminster when it was announced by General Jackson. I got had a word with him about it. I think it's very sad. Um, it's inevitable. That's the way things go. But my connection, is it, 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 it really is simple. Uh, simple. Uh, I can think of 14 members of my family in the Black Watch, and also our house in Scotland is in Coldstream itself. And Coldstream is the old, the Coldstream Guards is the oldest foot regiment in the, in the British Army, a Scottish regiment. So 
uh, it may not get the hackles up, but they're very clearly displayed. <laughs> now, according to a new study, the risk of developing a mental health problem among those who have served in the forces is greatest in veterans who served for the shortest period of time. The report from the University of Glasgow says the risk reduces with longer periods of service. Well, we can speak now to the author of that report, now former army medic Dr Beverly Bergman. Good to speak to you today, Dr Bergman. Now, the results do seem a bit surprising. Why would those serving for shorter periods be more susceptible to mental health issues? I think it's um, a finding which is surprising to people in the wider community, but perhaps less surprising um, for people who are serving or have served themselves in the armed forces. Um, Sorry. What's the theory then? Well, the theory is that um, the longer you serve in the armed forces, um, the more you're adapted to life in the armed forces and the more you're able to cope with stresses and strains. Um, but the people who join and perhaps find that it's not for them um, are the ones who are, in many cases, less able to cope with the stresses and strains of military life. But also um, a very surprising finding was that... Um, People who had served for such a short time that they hadn't actually finished their basic training um, had very high rates of mental health disorders as well. And the message that I think we should be drawing from that is that not all mental health disorders result from what's happened to you while you're in the armed forces if you're a veteran. Um, and some of the problem is going to be the result of things that have happened to you in your past life, and indeed for people who've been out of the services for some time, um, things that happen after they left. And we mustn't forget that because um, it's very important for um, healthcare professionals who are treating somebody with a mental health problem to know exactly what the problem is. Can you deduce anything from this as to the kind of attractiveness of the armed forces as a career to some people who might have mental health problems? Yes, the, there are medical screening procedures in place to um, identify people that we know uh, are less likely to be able to cope. Um, but inevitably, there's going to be people who perhaps have some things in their background that may be risk factors, um, but insufficient to disqualify them from service at all. Um, and for some of those, actually, with the training that they get in the armed forces, they're going to do a lot better than they would have done if they'd stayed in civilian life. Um, other people won't be able to cope, uh, will return to civilian life. And I don't think there's really any evidence that, um, leaving aside the few people for whom something really unpleasant has happened to them um, during those first few weeks of service, um, and we must be talking about very small numbers there, um, but for the others um, who join and then leave fairly quickly, they, they're going to resume the trajectory that they were on before. So if they were heading for um, future mental health problems, then they're going to continue to be heading for those problems. But then those who um, benefit from the training that they get when they're in the armed forces will actually do better than they would have done had they never joined. Christopher Lee. Uh, about 25 years ago, the, the Navy under the um, uh, second sea lord, as he then was, so sink nav home, which looked after all the all the welfare side of the, of the navy, they put together a report which didn't get very far. But the three things here that came up then: one, that it was quite possible that when you imagine that people join about the age of eighteen or something like that or nineteen, that they may have latent health 
problems uh, which are not evident when they join up. Another part of it is that uh, because the shorter uh, level of service may produce other problems is because that's why they left because they couldn't cope. And the third part of it is that when they do leave, what they do miss altogether is the camaraderie of mm. being in a unit which contain them. Once they're out, they're on their own. All right, we'll, we'll leave it there for now. Dr Beverly Bergman, thank you very much for your time today. Now, here's Putin's new secret weapon. <laughs> What's that then, Christopher? Here's your test of the week. That's my test. It's my my test of the week. Well, it was either, either a girl I used to know in Samora, <laughs> uh, which it. I don't think it is, <laughs> or it's a dolphin. Absolutely. It now has let been... me tell you about the girl in Samora. Her father no, was chief petty don't. officer, some, uh, Walker, who looked after <laughs> dolphins in San Diego. Well, there you go. We brought it all neatly together. It has been reported that Russia's defence ministry has placed an order for five dolphins, raising speculation that it's revived a programme to train the creatures to be naval scouts and assassins. So uh, tell us a little bit more about this, not about uh, the other person. Actually, you're right. Um, <laughs> There is an idea, and the Americans have not really made that much of it because it, you can't. It, it's, it's too unscientific. Hunting to actually, for mines and things it's like hunting that. Hunting for mines and things like this, but hunting for anything. You can train a dolphin rather like you can train a, a Springer Spaniel. That is the idea. It's never really worked. The Russians want to have a look at it and have, mm. a, have a go at it. And the Americans in San Diego are laughing their heads, or perhaps sort of whistling their heads off. If only we could train you in the same way. That's all we have time for today. Don't forget, you can download the podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. We're back same time next week. Thanks for listening from me, Kate Chabot. Bye-bye for now. British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2. Dozens of